and welcome to Make Space for Nature from Nature Scott, the podcast that celebrates Scotland's nature and landscapes. I'm Kirsten Guthrie and in each episode I, along with my co-presenters and guests, will help you connect with and protect our amazing natural world. In this episode, Tim Hancock and I speak to David O'Brien, Nature Scott's Biodiversity Evidence and Reporting Manager, who explains the importance of genetic diversity in the fight against climate change. He also provides us with some brilliant tips for making space for nature in our lives. Hi David, welcome to Make Space for Nature podcast and thank you for joining us. How are you? Very well, thank you Kirsten. Good, good. So um, first off, I'd like to ask you just to describe your your job in one short sentence, if you can, please. I manage Nature Scott's biodiversity evidence and reporting work and also our plant conservation strategy. Great. So we're we're here to talk about um, climate change and genetic diversity. Can you explain what that actually means and how it can help fight climate change and nature loss, please? Usually, when we think of nature, we think of perhaps habitats, uh, woodland or a grassland, or we think of the species that live within it, the, the, the insects, the plants, and so on. But below that level is a very important level, and that is genetic diversity. That's the genes within all living things. Now, these are very important because it's the variation in these genes that allows nature to adapt to change and of course at the moment we've got climate change and we know this is putting a lot of pressure on nature on biodiversity and having that variety of genetic material genetic diversity is going to be one of the key things that's going to allow nature to adapt and survive climate change and the related problems that come with it. Great, thank you. Um, something I, I think not a lot of people maybe think about. Um, I, I was reading just recently about the genetic uh, scorecard system um, and how it's being used, uh, and it's it's both here in Scotland and even further afield in, in Libya. Is that correct? Yes. When we designed the scorecard system, we worked on the basis that if genetic diversity is important, and we think it is, you need some way of measuring to see how it's, it's going along. We're pretty good at measuring things like how species are doing, but how do you measure genetic diversity? And we wanted a system that was simple yet powerful, something that captured the main threats. So when we did that, we then wanted to make sure, okay, it would work for uh, a country like Scotland, but how about a country like Libya, which has been through a lot of trouble in the last uh 10, 15 years and beyond that. Uh, so I've been working with colleagues at the University of Benghazi to see if they can use the same scorecard approach in Libya as we're using in Scotland. And so far, it looks like it's a, an effective tool at helping to understand the threats to genetic diversity there. David, genetic diversity is obviously something that a lot of us don't think about day to day the way you do. Um, do you have any examples of projects you might be working on at the moment that might help people understand um, the kinds of changes that you're seeing? Yeah, as you say, Tim, uh, genetic diversity is not something that most of us have at the forefront of our minds. But I'll give you a couple of examples, one of which is um, about Eight, ten years ago, we discovered that there was a population of great crested newts in the Highlands, which was genetically distinct from anywhere else in Scotland and the UK. 
we also discovered that it was only had very few uh, populations. So we worked. We wanted to work with local people to protect those populations. Uh, now, luckily, some of those populations were on farmland, and farmers, if any group of the population can be said to really understand genetics, it's farmers because they're used to the concept of how genetics will confer resistance to disease, adaptability to drought, and so forth. So when we said to them, look, we want to preserve these creatures um, and we want to preserve the local genetic streams, they understood that straight away and were really happy to work with us. And um, several years on, it's been a very successful project. Um, we've managed to increase the number of populations by over 25%. Um, and we've done that without impacting the economic gains that the farmers are making from their land as well. I mean, they've given up a bit of marginal land for this project, and it's worked extremely well. So uh, as a result, I would like to say that certainly in the medium term, we've managed to safeguard a genetically unique population, a population that has adapted to past climate change events uh, here in the Highlands of Scotland. Uh, another example I could give would be Ben A National Nature Reserve, where we have been working with the team there to establish the UK's first gene conservation unit, and that's for Scots Pine. And that, again, is protecting locally adapted variants of Scots Pine. And you may think, well, a pine's a pine. But there's actually a lot of difference between pines in the east of Scotland and the west of Scotland. East of Scotland, they're more used to hard winters um, and hotter summers. Uh, west of Scotland, they're more used to damper winters, which can bring their own diseases with them, but they're adapted to it and they're resistant to it. And one of the things about having a broad base of, uh, in this case, saplings, um, is that you're more likely within that to have individuals that are resistant to new diseases as they come along. So, so far, both of those um, touch wood, if you'll excuse the, the pine-based pun, uh, seem to be doing well. I think you've answered my next question already, which was um, going to be along the lines of, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, but a newt's a newt, a pine's a pine. Do we need that many um, variations? But I think pointing out the, the difference in, in climate, even in, within the same country, how, how important that can be. I think, yeah, an example that most people will resonate with is probably Ash Dieback. And when Ash Dieback came uh, to these shores, a lot of people, myself included actually, thought this is doom and gloom, this is going to wipe out ash as, as we know it, which, as well as being an important part of Scotland's natural heritage, our, 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 our countryside, it also is a very important species for holding together woodland. It does all the things that you expect a woodland species to do, such as trapping carbon and providing um, homes and shelter for other plants, for bryophyte, for mosses, I should say, and for insects, birds, etc. But what we found instead is, and you, you can probably see this if you go for a walk, is that you'll see wherever you go, you'll see some ash uh, trees, and particularly seedlings, that are suffering very badly from ash dieback, and others right next to them that are pretty much unaffected. Um, and what we think is happening here, and there's some evidence already shows this, is that the variation, 
different genetic variation in the population. Some of them have higher resistance. And that is what's going to carry us through because we're going to get more diseases. We're going to get more pests uh, coming into this country through uh, because when we have warmer winters, the hard winters won't kill them off in the case of some of the pests. So we're going to get more of these things. So the more um, natural variation and genetics we've got, the more chance we've got of um, species surviving. That's incredible. It just shows the way nature starts to try to protect itself from the kinds of things we cause like climate change. But I know, um, speaking back to our, our, the theme of our podcast being make space for nature, I know in your spare time you're also quite a keen citizen scientist, David. Do you want to let us know about some of the things you get up to? Yeah, I, I've always been um, mad about uh, nature. I started very young, particularly interested in amphibians and reptiles and I, can't, I still do that now, so I spend a lot of my weekends going out looking for new sites uh, where particularly newts, frogs, toads have not been seen before, and I uh, write, down my, write down my records and submit those to the local recording group, and they ultimately appear on the, the National Biodiversity Network so that anybody can, can see them. Um, and it's very useful from a scientific point of view, but quite frankly, I, I really enjoy it as well. It's a very good excuse to get out there. And I think a lot of people, for example, if you've got a dog, you've got to go take that dog for a walk. I don't have a dog, so why, you know, when the weather's a little bit off, why should I go out? And this just gives me that extra bit of motivation. And it's fun. It, it, it's a little bit of a challenge, looking for things, uh, identifying them, and then submitting that record. So, uh, it's a, I would say it's not, it's not even a guilty pleasure. It's a, a positive pleasure, isn't it? A virtuous pleasure. Like that's exactly the kind of thing we're, we're, we're trying to encourage people to do. Be, whatever you, you find interesting and want to record, you know, there's, there's always going to be a group of scientists who are interested in getting that extra data. Um, why frogs and newts, though? I'm sure a lot of people will ask. You know, you're, not, you're not doing the, the looking at birds or, or toadstools, which is slightly more common, I think. Frogs and newts? Um, I think it's a it, it did start in childhood. And I think a lot of people the, one of the advantages with with frogs in particular. Once you can tell a frog from a toad, certainly in Scotland, you're there because there's there's only one species of frog, and unless you're in the uh, the, the, the Dumfries coast, there's only one species of toad as well. So it's quite easy to identify them. So you know you've got it right because that's one of the barriers. People think, oh, for example, you mentioned toadstools. Well, there's, there's hundreds. I mean, what if I get it wrong? What if I submit a record that's wrong? Are, are, are people going to laugh at me? Um, and to be fair, people won't. Um, but with frogs and toads, it's really easy to get them right. Newt's slightly more difficult. But once you start to get into it, it's uh, it, there are plenty of good websites that will tell you how to tell the Scottish species apart. And also, um, when you submit a record, um, and I'm a, a verifier, uh, so... If I get a record and someone says, well, I think this is a smooth new, and if, if it's not, I'll say, well, actually, no, it's a palmate, and this is how you tell them apart. So we were all beginners once, um, and uh, I think it's quite a friendly sort of group to get involved with. The other thing I like about frogs, toads, newts, and, and reptiles is that uh, once a year, uh, before COVID anyway, we used to go to a, a conference. It was really good because it, you get everybody from professors to people who just started out to 
people who just dug a pond in their garden and wanted to know what on earth they got in there. Uh, and it was such a friendly community. So uh, I, I really like that. Um, it's regardless of race, color, and creed. I think possibly because um, if you're into frogs and toads and newts, it's, it's a little bit niche, shall we say. Therefore, you're sure as heck not going to discriminate against anybody turning up. You're just going to embrace them with both arms because um, <laughs> you found another kindred spirit. And uh, yeah, I do think it breaks down barriers and it's good fun. And it's something anyone can do. You don't need equipment. If you're doing bird watching, when you get serious, you need binoculars. If you're doing um, some of the more uh, obscure groups, you need microscopes. With amphibians, you just need your eyes. And it's the kind of thing you can do if you've got a family, you can do it with your kids, get them interested in the life cycle of the frog. Um, it's great. And again, tying back to climate change, which is how we all started out, uh, these are a group that we know are likely to be impacted because climate change, as well as getting hotter, we're going to get more drought. And uh, I'm sure you can see where this is going, but uh, species species that breed in ponds are unlikely to do well when we start having droughts. So it's something that you can explain to, to your kids and also you can do something about it and say, right, well, do you know what? We're going to dig a pond in our garden. Or if you don't have a garden, well, we, you know, maybe we'll volunteer at the local nature reserve. Um, so it's something that's really accessible and it's, it's good fun. And you get all muddy as well, which is great. Love it. I was about to say, just need your eyes and probably a good pair of wheelies. Uh, do you know what? Um, trainers and shorts for me. Because the number of times the water goes over the wellies, you may as well just embrace the cold. All right. But uh, yeah, when do you start? Uh, wellies, are, wellies are fine. Uh, that might be a bit too Scottish for me, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that reminds me, we've got um, we've got frogs uh, here where we are, so that reminds me uh, uh, to, to, to submit my sightings, actually, um, because the kids are always out trying to find trying to find the frog. So it is, as you say, it's a lovely thing for them, for anyone to get into, but certainly at a young age, it's a great way for children to engage with nature. But as adults, you're also learning as well, and you know, you can we can all download some apps for you know identifying uh, certain species and and that's certainly one of the things we we encourage in the make space for nature campaign so um i mean you've given us quite a lot of 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 encouragement there to try and get outdoors and, and engage with nature um and we always ask our guests if there's if there's two top tips that you could you could give us um to to try i mean really it's about trying to engage with nature and more about you know fighting climate change and fighting nature loss and and you know these these things which are so vitally important what what would you suggest number one um if you've got a garden dig a pond it doesn't have to be a big pond um and uh, i know when i had small children we put um like a mesh grid so there was no worries of them falling in uh that is the best thing for most species even things like birds that you may not think of they need to they need to bathe uh, and also there's a lot of insects that come out so number one dig a pond um, and number two try and find someone who el who's also interested because quite often you'll look out there and you think oh I don't fancy going out today oh I'm just going to sit here and have a, a cake and a cup of coffee if you've already arranged to meet your mate and go for a walk to look for nature you've got to do it 
and you'll enjoy it. But it's just having that little extra motivator to get you out there. And one thing I should say, I should have mentioned before, and the other good things about amphibians is even in our big cities, there are frogs in, in ponds in the centres. I mean, I've been uh, within um, half a mile of Glasgow Green and found common frogs. Uh, I've been in, in uh, housing estates in Edinburgh and Dundee and found frogs and newts. So they're on your doorstep. You don't have to go far, which also is a, is a big thing that, you know, for most people that you haven't got the time to, to go long journeys on a regular basis. Just go out on your lunchtime, on an evening walk, make the most of it. Great. That's brilliant. Thank you. I think that's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today, David, and um, for encouraging us to get out and and look for all kinds of things, including frogs and newts, if that strikes your fancy or, or whatever it might be. There's there's always something for you to go out and enjoy nature. And uh, even in the, the cold winter months that approach, it's, it's keep getting outdoors, I think, is the, the message. Definitely get out there. And even if things like frogs and newts are hibernating, um, if you've got a a handy sort of turn of f- f- mind to yourself it's an ideal time to dig a pond or um even do things for other species put up a nest box um start thinking start planning your su- your, your, your spring in terms of which pollinator friendly flowers you might plant there's there's lots to do even in winter even if it's just looking at pictures of frogs brilliant thanks so much david thank you thanks for listening if you're enjoying Make Space for Nature, we'd really appreciate if you could give it a follow in your podcast app and leave a review or a rating. We'd also love it if you could tell just one other person about it. If you'd like to find out more about how you can connect with and help protect Scotland's natural world, go to nature.scot.com.